How do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic, the best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening from. And first and foremost, a huge thank you to our listeners for tuning in for our last episode, And It Begins. And welcome to Season 1, Episode 2, Tattooed on Your Brain. So when Joe and I sat down and we started discussing from the Green Notebook, I think we both immediately agreed that we didn't want the podcast to focus on one single aspect of leader development. And although we both have extensive military backgrounds, we also knew that nobody owns the market when it comes to leadership and that we can learn to be great leaders through all kinds of individuals, whether it be people in business, authors, teachers, even an Uber driver, if we know what lessons we're looking for, and more importantly, how to identify those lessons when they're presented to us. In our first episode, Joe and I talk about the importance of habit forming, and that if you're really passionate about something, you're going to find the time to do it. And our guest today, author Michael McClellan, really embodies that concept. Michael has a pretty extraordinary story and was an extremely busy guy. He was a lawyer, he was a father, and he was a husband. And yet he somehow found the time to sit down over a 12-year period and write an 800-page Tolkien-esque novel. And he did it by committing to sit down every day over that 12-year period and write 500 words, no matter what, until the novel was finished. So you can certainly imagine the type of dedication it requires to form that kind of habit over that long of a period. Another important aspect of Michael's journey was choosing the right mentor. And that's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast. And as you'll hear in this episode, Michael really leaned on his mentor at times. Someone that I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with already, uh, author Stephen Pressfield. And you'll hear how Stephen really took Michael under his wing and ended up being the perfect mentor for this project. Just a quick background on Michael. He got his undergraduate from Yale University, where he played four years of football as well. He then went on to get his law degree from Georgetown University and now works at Newmeyer Dillon as a business and real estate litigation lawyer, where he actually was selected to the rising star list by super lawyers every year from 2014 through 2019. So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show today, author of The Sand Sea, Michael McClellan. Jacob and Joe, uh, great to be on. Uh, love, uh, love, love what you guys are doing and, and love a chance to talk about the sand sea. 
Perfect. So I'm um, going into that. Let's just take a moment and, and uh, can you tell us, you know, when this started, when this process started for you and, and how you, uh, how it came about and what was your motivation or maybe some of the many, uh, a few of the many motivations behind this book? Sure. Uh, so this, uh, this has been in many ways a, a lifelong uh, journey for me, Jacob. I grew up reading a ton of history. Uh, I was uh, I was a guy uh, when I was a kid who would would ask for like Civil War battlefield books uh, for Christmas, and uh, family members would think that I was joking, and my parents would ensure them that I was actually serious. <laughs> that I really did want uh, you know Bruce Catton on Antietam uh, as as uh, something that that I would spend my evenings doing when I was uh, you know, nine or ten. As I as I got a little bit older. Uh, and moved along in my history journey, I, I became really taken with the period between the end of the American Civil War and the beginning of World War I, which I, I call the first era of globalization. That was when the world was really coming together. That was the Wild West in the United States, the transcontinental railroad. Uh, you had industry booming in America. You had uh, tons of immigration from from old Europe. Uh, it was also the era of the peak of the British Empire, uh, when you had the clash of civilizations across the globe. And so, uh, at the same time that I was reading all of that history, I also was someone who was always reading big, epic, imaginative stories like Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, or when it came out. Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I was uh, taken by the Harry Potter series, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia when I was a little kid. And so I had this, this vision that if I could bring together the history that I had always loved with uh, one of those uh, epic imaginative frameworks, uh, that that would be something that didn't yet exist. And so I, I wanted to, to fuse those two, but didn't really know how to do it. And so in 2008, about 12 years ago, I was having dinner with a man who became my, my mentor in writing, and his name is Stephen Pressfield. And he had, had written uh, some amazing books like Gates of Fire uh, and The War of Art, uh, Tides of War, and others. And uh, we were having dinner, and I, and I, I pitched him on this idea that uh, he uh, should write that book that, that I said, Steve, you know, look, uh, you're a professional writer. You're an amazing writer. You're one of my favorites. I think you should write uh, this story that sort of combines uh, all of these things. And and he looked looked me in the eyes and he said, no, Mike, I, I think you should write it. And he drove back home that night and he sent me an email. And the email was titled, Tattooed on Your Brain. And he basically said, Mike, look, I've looked, at, looked into a lot of faces, looked into a lot of eyes over the years, and I've heard a lot of ideas. And uh, this one of yours is, is real. And if you don't do this, you will regret it for the rest of your life. And you need to, to battle resistance until it's done. And that was... So, so this started 12 years ago then? started started 12 years ago and that was that was that was really the, the kickoff and of course when it started I had I had no idea that it would actually take 12 years 
I, I assumed like, like many of us, you know, what, what did they say in World War I? They thought the, in August, they thought the armies would be home by Christmas. I was pretty sure that I'd be done in a year or two, and, and that would be that. Well, maybe you should have made it like 200 pages instead of like 700. And what is, how long is the book? It's about 750 pages. I mean, it's oh, truly epic, fantastic. epic fiction. But the funny thing is, it's about 285,000 words. The, the funny thing is, I probably had to ultimately write over those 12 years about 1.2 million words to get it down to the 285,000 that, that ultimately made it into the book. Michael, that's, that's amazing. And just let me bring up this point. Last week, when, when I sat down with Joe, we talked about writing and how difficult it can be. And we talked about um, how writing is like a piece of wood and you shave and you shape it. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, throwing that piece of wood away and starting all over again as part of the process. So the fact that you, you know, you brought that up uh, really is, uh, is something that we focused on and, and is, is key to writers to know that, hey, it's not, you know, it's not an easy process and it's certainly not a short one. Well, that's right. And, and look, it's, um, I, I've heard it referred to as the iceberg principle, right? Which is that 90% uh, of the work is is below the surface, and it's the the ten percent above that the reader ultimately sees. But what creates that reality, what suspends the disbelief in the reader, uh, is all of that work that went into it before, all of that stuff that is uh, off screen. That's uh, that, that's awesome, Michael. And you know, it's funny because you talk about coming into contact with Stephen Pressfield and how he was like, Hey, you have to do this, you know? And for me, I have been a Stephen Pressfield fans for years, you know, in the army gates of fires, like required reading for every, uh, junior officer. And so, you know, one day I got this email that says, Hey, this new book's coming out called the sand sea and Stephen Pressfield who never recommends any other author's fiction books recommends you read this. And so uh, I started reading your book, man. And, and, uh, you know, I, I immediately got sucked into it so much so that I read it one time and then, um, you know, I, I've actually gone through and read it. I'm reading it a second time just because the, the story is, is so amazing. And like Stephen Pressfield said in his reviews, it's like it's it's on the scale of a, a, a Tolkien novel. So could you kind of talk a little bit about like what the plot, the plot of the story is for those who aren't familiar with the CNC? Joe, absolutely, and 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 thank you. The story is ultimately uh, the story of the hero's journey, and so we have uh, we have some characters, and and you always want your your hero's journey to to be on theme, right? And and so what what is the theme of the Sand Sea? It is the creation of character and the formation of character. Uh, by moving from a place of order uh, into chaos and then emerging. Uh, into a new order on the other side of that chaos. So we have two young men. Uh, one in uh, and and it, I should pause and say this is an this is an alternate uh, Earth that that mirrors our Earth in the Gilded Age, and that's what puts it into the realm of, of historical fantasy. So we have a, a a British type type character and an American type character, and their fathers are are essentially oligarchs. And there's a mineral that is in this eastern desert, and they want their sons to be part of this expedition uh, that is cloaked 
uh, as a geographic exploration for the good of humanity. But the real purpose of the expedition is that they're going to go and secure uh, this mineral from these uh, tribesmen that they think are uh, unsophisticated uh, and that they're going to be able to to get this mineral uh, on the cheap. What they don't know is that they are sending their uh, sons into the the desert in the year of the Bessarian prophecy. And at the same time that that this story is happening, we also have a young woman who is also coming from our American stand-in that is is joining the expedition initially against the wishes of her oligarch father. And then on the eastern side, we have a woman uh, of destiny uh, whose whose family is tied up uh, in this prophecy. And so she is essentially moving towards the West as our Western characters are moving towards the East. And all of these characters find that that they uh, end up getting wrapped up in events, uh, world historical events that that are uh, much, much more uh, than they anticipated or bargained for. So they they move into a, a place of extreme chaos and they're, all of their characters are immensely tested in that context. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. I, I know that um, I, this should be on everybody's read list uh, and, and I think you succeeded in, in, in what you were trying to accomplish because if I, I, I listened to Stephen Pressfield's review of your book and it says that it is a Raiders of the Lost Ark combined with a Game of Thrones. So uh, it certainly seems like your influence um, came across when you were, um, you know, of those books that you spoke about earlier. But um, but yeah, I, it, it's a fantastic book and, and I think it's a must read and, and congratulations on your, your success so far with this and hopefully uh, future success. Thank you, Jacob. So again, what we were getting into here is talking about uh, leadership qualities and leader development with this podcast. And Joe and I had talked, um, sat down and talked about how that's not always with subordinates. Sometimes great leadership comes from within. And last week we talked about self-awareness. Um, we talked about habit forming and all of these things that I can't even imagine the amount of, of you know, perseverance and, and those types of leadership qualities that you had to endure over 12 years of going through this. So can you share a little bit about that with us and and were there ever any moments where you just say, I can't do this, I, I give up, I, I'm not meant to do this? Um, and how did you get through those moments? And if you didn't, how did you keep that positive attitude uh, all the way throughout? Well, look, you're, you're right. Uh, it is a, writing is a daily test of will, of character. Uh, and, and Pressfield likes to talk about the concept of resistance in a book that, that he wrote called the war of art. And for me in the early years, I, I was a weekend warrior. And, and in many ways, I was, I was uh, still an amateur in the sense that I would, I would, would go, to, go to work uh, all week. Uh, my, my day job is I, I'm a, a lawyer and I would, would work a, a long week of lawyer hours. And then I would go out to the garage on a on a Saturday, and I would would put in uh, six or seven hours of work, and I would come uh, out of the garage, and I would say, you know, hi, hi, honey, to my wife, and she'd say, how much did you get done? And I'd have like a page or two to show for it, and she'd say, what, what, what the heck? 
And, and, and she said, what, what were you doing out there all the time? I say, oh, I was, I was researching. And she would say, look, stop researching and start writing. And as is true of, of most things, she was, she was correct in that. There was a big watershed moment for me. And that was on New Year's Eve between 2013 and 2014. So 1231, 2013, one of my younger cousins uh, died. And I was very close to him. And it very clearly reminded me that life is not a dress rehearsal. And there are um, some of the falsest words in the English language are once I do this, then I'm going to go and do this other thing. Right. Once once my you know career slows down a bit, then I'm going to I'm going to become the painter I was always meant to be or I'm going to I'm going to write my novel or whatever it is. It became clear to me that uh, friction and resistance were always going to be there and that if I wanted to, to truly do this, I was going to have to shift my habits. And so, so, so Michael, uh, I, sorry to interrupt, but were you going through that? Was it a, you said you were a weekend warrior and were you kind of, I don't want to say procrastinating, but was it becoming more of a, well, I'll put more effort into it when I do this. And then that kind of, you know, I'm sorry about your cousin, by the way, but and that moment kind of pushed you into the direction of saying, okay, now I need to do this. The answer is I, I was working hard, but not with sufficient consistency, right? I was, I was playing mm -hmm. with being a writer. And so on, on January 13th, 2014, I woke up at 5.05 AM and wrote 500 words. And I, I, it was a Monday. Uh, and I vowed that I was going to do that every day until it was done. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Didn't matter if I had a trial, if it was Christmas day, if we were on vacation, if my you know, younger daughter, Violet, was being born, um, I wrote my words in the delivery room. And so I, I still write 500 words a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you know, six years and whatever it is later. And for me, that was the commitment to move from uh, an amateur mindset to a professional mindset to, to get it done. And I think, I think all transitions require a transition in mindset and require a moment of sacrifice. And, and for me, you know, that was, that was one of the, that was the real watershed moment that moved me from quote, working on it to, to actually really doing it. Yeah. Michael with the, you know, with me, with the blog, you know, I started it seven years ago and, you know, this is a conversation Jacob and I have had several times, but I never thought I'd still be doing it seven years late. Like I never had a goal that my blog would become a military blog and it would become something that all these other people from all around the world write on. That, that was never a goal. It was just something I did a little bit every day. Uh, did, did the streak of writing 500 words a day, did, did all of a sudden, did that take on a weight all its own and, and kind of help propel you forward? Because I, I know with me, looking back, I realized that the, just the practice of writing kind of helped me push through it. Absolutely. It, it became many, many days. It was painful to wake up early and, and, and do the words. And as time went on, I would, I would shift the, the, the point of the day where I would do the writing. But what it came to was I, I didn't want today to ever be the day 
that I stopped writing every day. And, and so it, it, it became a discipline that was non-negotiable. And so it, it created a momentum and it created a consistency that kept resistance on the run. Be, because the reality is we are masters at creating excuses for why we shouldn't do uh, you know, our duty on any given day. And it is habits. It is that overwhelming consistency that keeps us moving forward. And, and so for me, it, it, it could be reduced down to, to one sentence, which was the pain of writing every day was outweighed by the fear of falling off the wagon. That, that's such a great point because Joe and I discussed in last week's episode about, and we talked about habit forming. And, and I asked Joe when he finds the time. I think, Joe, you read about 40 books a year, you said? Yeah. And, and I asked him, where do you find the time to do that with, with a family and a job? And you know, you mentioned earlier that you were a lawyer and Joe and I work. So we're all in a sense doing this in our in our free time. So it's a great point to say that, hey, listen, if you really want to do something, then you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to get up at 5 a.m. You're going to have to stay up late some days if this is what you really want. And I kind of want to go into, you made the comment that your wife was, you know, told you to stop reading and start writing. And, hmm. um, you know, there is that that saying, and I'll probably mess it up, but it's something um, like behind every good leader is a great spouse. So how much of a role did she play in in kind of motivating you, if at all? And And what I'm getting at more so is networks, right? We all need networks and all good leaders need networks to depend upon. So how did you build yours um, and, and who is a, is, a, is a deep part of those networks? I think uh, for me, it's, you know, I, I was living a, a, a dual life for many, many, many years uh, and, and in many ways st- still am, right? I, I, I'm leading human beings uh, as a, a head of a, a business litigation group at, at a law firm and, and then am also you know, writing uh, the historical fiction, historical fantasy uh, at the same time every day. And for me, there were a handful of people who were absolutely critical at critical moments to push the sand sea towards conclusion. And the bigger, the, the more serious the process got, the more people became involved, right? In, in the earliest days, it was Stephen Pressfield as mentor uh, who would, uh, you know, I would email for advice and he would send back encouragement. And that would keep me going, because at the end of the day, as a as a fiction as a first time fiction writer, you're working for years, or possibly in my case, a, a decade, uh, before you have anything to show for it. You can often feel like you're a crazy person because you're putting in this this enormous daily prolonged effort. And people ask, "Hey, you still writing that book?" Yes. weren't you weren't you working on that like five years ago? Yep. And you're still working on it. I am, and so to have a handful of people to be able to encourage you that your dream is not madness uh, was was critical. And my wife absolutely was fundamental in that. And in many ways, simply with the expectation that Michael's going to write his words every day. And my daughters growing up, my my oldest daughter uh, is now eight, and and our youngest daughter just turned five. They are long, long familiar with the concept that daddy's doing his words. You don't bother daddy when he's doing his words. And that's just a part of life in our home, which is that's the rhythm. 
that that gets done every day. And so that that's a really important part. There's someone else I want to mention too, though, which is in December of uh, 2000 and gosh, I'm getting my years mixed up here. I think it was December of 2016. Uh, I was talking to our managing partner here, uh, a guy named Paul Tetzloff. He's a he's a Marine. He's an officer. He's an Afghan war vet, and he's he's a very close friend. and And he asked me, he said, "How's the writing going?" And I said, "You know, look, I still write every single day." And he said, "Have you shared it with Steve yet? Have you have you sent your real writing uh, to Pressfield?" And I said, "You know, no, I haven't." And for me, I was. I was never sure it was it was good enough yet, and I and I, I still needed to keep working on it, and and I had the discipline down, but I didn't have the confidence to to send it off. And so he he said, you know, why don't you why don't you share a little bit with me? And so I did, and and he read it, and he said, look, I I don't know, I don't know anything. I'm just a guy, but I think this is pretty good, and I think you should send this on, and that gave me the the confidence to uh, reach out to Steve. Um, who said, "Look, send me send me twenty five pages." Uh, he said, "I'm an, I'm going to read it." He said, "I'm going to take a couple of days, so if you don't hear from me right away, don't think it's because I don't like it." I think he knows how how insecure all writers can be about about their work, uh, and he said, "But I'll get back to you." And so so he did, and he and he sent me uh, that you know email you always dream of, which is, "Look, I knew that it was going to be detailed and thoughtful, but you know this is the real thing, and you you've got the spark." And let me introduce you to Sean Coyne, uh, who is Steve's editor of 20 plus years. And he did. And Sean you know, took me on and became my editor. Uh, and through his uh, business partners, ultimately became my publisher at StoryGrid. And collaborating with Sean was, was huge. I mean, he, he's one of the great editors in America. And uh, at each at each stage, the, the the team got bigger. So so Sean was my my structural editor, and then and then we brought in a you know a great a great copy editor and a line by line editor and a proofreader and, and all of those components that that come in and 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 it gets a little bit better at each stage with with the um, addition of of those those new experts. Uh, at the same time, we brought in the amazing British artist to do the cover. Um, uh, brought in an, another amazing artist to do uh, the maps uh, that are in the book and the interior artwork. Yeah, that, it's funny that story you told about your family. It reminds me of the movie Stand by Me. Um, at the end, when when the the kid, uh, the child is asking his father to come play, and his friend says, "You know, he said that he'd be done an hour ago." And he said, "Yeah, my my dad gets like that when he writes." Um, and it just kind of <laughs> threw me back to that. Same type of moment. So, and, and that's great. Joe uh, has talked about how terrifying it is for writers to really, you know, put their work out there and, and for people to see. And in in this day and age, it's really being put out there, you know, with technology and how quickly it can it can get around. But um, so I guess my next question is, how do you stay motivated? I mean, you, I would say that you are uh, you successfully completed your goal of, of writing this book um, and putting it out. Do you still have that same motivation to get up every day? Do you still write 500 words a day? Yeah. And on top of that, Jacob, like this is only book one of a three book trilogy. So you've, you've got some writing to do. So, so how do you like, it's like you went over the first mountain and you still have got 
got two mountain ranges ranges to go. So, so how do you do that? That's right, uh, Joe. And look, I I was joking actually with with, with Pressfield in the last twenty four hours, saying, you know, I feel like I'm swimming the Nile River longwise again. And right. I think I think the point of of being a writer or really being committed to anything, truly committed to anything is that it's, it's not about the the big moments, right? Life is won or lost in the, in the daily day to day decisions, because that's where our character is formed. And ultimately our character is our destiny. And so for me, it's, Yes, we're, we're, there have been some amazing moments with book one so far. I mean, in the last week, you know, what's, what's the line? Things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could. Well, we, we made it into the top 20 in our, in our category on Amazon you know, early last week, and then it was the top 10, and then it was the top five. Um, and, and so that's, that's amazing. And, you know, I think we made it into the top 700 books on all of Kindle, right? All categories. And, and that was, that was wonderful. But, but the truth is, is that you can fall just as fast as you rose. And ultimately everyone who has read the sand sea and enjoyed it is saying, Hey, when's book two coming? And I'm looking forward to it. And you left that one on a bit of a cliffhanger. So deliver, deliver, uh, and you don't get 12 years to write this one. And so for me, it's, uh, it's all of those things uh, wrapped into the fact that there's only one way to do it, and that's to go forward a little bit every day. And so, yes, I, I write every single day and, and I am grappling uh, on a daily basis to uh, make sure that all of the uh, nuance and complexity and depth that was uh, forged over a long period of time in the Sand Sea uh, is also going to be uh, present in the sequel. And I've been making some some great progress uh, on it uh, over the past uh, couple weeks uh, and months. And I, I'm starting to get excited about about some of the some of the um, the character arcs and and some of the themes and scenes that are starting to emerge. And look, a lot of the best stuff comes while you're you're as Presswell would say, while your ass is in the chair. Right? It's really hard to just sit there and say, "Hmm, let me perfectly outline this really complicated story." No, most of the stuff comes when you're actually grinding, when you're actually in it, when you're doing the work. I would have never guessed that. That's a that's a really good point because, you know, I'm uh, I've never I've never even uh, dreamt about writing a book. So um, I, it's it's an interesting point for me to hear that it it happens like that. So yeah, and 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 one of the things that um, you know I, I'm a huge reader, and so w- when I was reading your book, it like it it harkened back to to the classics, right? Like like Tolkien. Um, you know, you've already you mentioned the hero's journey earlier. Um, you know. The, the Iliad, the Odyssey, it's just, it's like a tale that follow, follows a, a blueprint that's unlike a lot of other books that are out there. Um, and, and it really just kind of speaks to us as you're reading through. And it's just something that you, that you can, you just kind of get wrapped up in. Um, what, what books, you know, would you say are, are your inspiration um, that you've learned from over the years? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
and in, in some ways it's a hard one to answer in a direct way. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to pull various pieces. Tolkien is a huge uh, inspiration for me in terms of the fact that not only did he create this very readable, very fun, very interesting story, but Tolkien deals with profound issues of meaning and of good and evil. At the end of the day, The Lord of the Rings is an intensely moral story. And I love that. And I I wanted to, part of the reason I wrote an alternate history uh, based on a world that mirrors ours as opposed to straight historical fiction is that when I was writing the historical fiction, I was I was creating taxidermy, meaning it was accurate. It was accurate in the history. It was well-written. It was beautiful to look at, but it wasn't alive. It wasn't galloping, and it wasn't galloping towards these, these big moral questions. And that was really what fueled the shift. For me, books that have captured my heart, some of the old James Michener novels uh, of the, the 60s and 70s, uh, books like The Source, books like The Covenant about South Africa, Poland, Alaska, these sort of sweeping epics that go from prehistoric times up to the present. Um, I've loved those. James Clavell, uh, who wrote Noble House and Shogun, is a, is a huge uh, inspiration for me. I, I think, you know, I don't know how much you guys know about Clavell, but but he was a prisoner of war in a, in a Japanese camp in the Second World War. And he wrote an amazing book about that called called King Rat. But the fact that he was able to create in Shogun um, a, a a stunning manifestation of the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate was to me just just unbelievable that that he as a as a, a, a British guy was able to have that kind of an imagination and and that kind of a depth of understanding of of a foreign place in a foreign time. Um, I felt the same way about Noble House, which he wrote about uh, Hong Kong in the in the 1960s. Michael Shara's The Killer Angels about the Battle of Gettysburg uh, has always been a, a huge uh, inspiration for me in terms of how to write about battles and critical historical moments. Uh, Stephen Pressfield's The Gates of Fire, Gates of Fire, of course, about the Spartans at Thermopylae. Also, though, Tides of War about Alcibiades and the Peloponnesian Wars also had a big impact on me. There's a lot of other books uh, that, that influence some other parts of the Sand Sea that, that may be a little bit less obvious. Um, Gore Vidal wrote some amazing books on American history. He wrote Burr. He wrote Lincoln. He wrote 1876, Empire, Hollywood, uh, and then Washington, D.C. in the Golden Age. And, and he basically goes from the founding uh, to the mid-20th century. Uh, in terms of writing social novels. And, and he, he found a way to really put you in the room with like Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge and William Randolph Hearst having a discussion. And so I wanted to, to also try and capture some of that, some of that uh, power politics and kind of the sense of being in the room in addition to writing a, 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 a war novel on, on the lines of a, a, a Killer Angels or, or a Gates of Fire. So I wanted to sort of fuse a lot of things together in the Sand Sea. And, and I think one of the beautiful things about getting to write for as long as I got to write for was that I got to put in a lot of things that I really 
really have enjoyed over the course of my life. You know, I've always been fascinated by the Ottoman Janissaries. Well, there's characters in the Sand Sea that are very much based on them. I've always been fascinated by uh, the Bengal Lancers uh, in in the British Army at the in the, the late Victorian era. And so there's there's soldiers that are based uh, upon them in the Sand Sea. Uh, Michael, have you ever uh, heard of the author Chris Bunch? He wrote a book called The Seer King. No, but I'm going to write that down right now. Yeah, so just kind of a lot of the things you talked about in your book itself reminded me a bit of that. He has a trilogy, and when Joe said that, it reminded me. It's called The Seer King, The the Demon King, and The Warrior King. And I only say it because I I, I don't read much um, non-fiction uh, at all. I'm more of a non-fiction kind of guy, and, and Joe is uh, always you know, jabbing at me to read more fiction, read more fiction. And and those are one of the three books that I really enjoyed. And and I also enjoyed Tolkien very much as well. So if you're looking for, or I'm sure you get reading recommendations all the time, but I would suspect that you would enjoy those books. I'm going to go on Amazon after we get off this, uh, this call. Um, there is one other book I should mention, or two other books I should mention, which are nonfiction. Um, Robert Caro's The Years of Lyndon Johnson uh, have had a powerful impact on me uh, based upon his uh, study of Lyndon Johnson's rise and and of how uh, power in American politics worked uh, really in the the middle 50 years of the 20th century. That influenced how I write about political leaders in in the Sand Sea. Uh, And then also, of course, uh, William Manchester's uh, the Last Lion, uh, his biography of of Winston Churchill, uh, also was it was a huge influence for me. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, I mean, I, I think we could. I know myself, I could get a whole year's worth of reading out of what you just, uh, you know, just shared with us on the podcast. We were we talk about an author, Simon Sinek, quite a bit, and and he, you know, he has a diagram where he always says starts with why. That he says start with why. He said you have the a lot of companies that start with what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. And then they end on the why. And he really says you should start from the center out and say, well, why am I doing this? And that's most important. So one of the things that we like to ask our guests is what's your why? So I'd like to kind of kick that over to you. If you might, you know, tell us what is your why, not only behind the San Sea, but uh, everything that you do. Well, I love, I love that question, Jacob. And one of the questions I've been asked on on other interviews is, Michael, what made you think that you could do this? This is your first novel. It's a it's an epic. It's seven hundred and fifty pages. Conventional wisdom says you start with short stories. Once you've had some success with those, you move on to shorter novels, and then maybe at some point you can write a big book like this. The truth for me is my goal wasn't to be a writer. My goal was I wanted to write a book like this. And why I wanted to write a book like this is I wanted to write the book that I personally most wanted to read that had not yet been written. And the books that had always carried me away and and transported me, the books that had changed me, were always books that were gigantic. It was. It was. It, it required that kind of scale to to have that kind of impact on me, and so I, I set out to do that. And and I knew that it it sat on my heart like an obsession. And if I didn't work on it, uh, I would feel like I was wasting my life. And and I, I don't remember if it was General Mattis who said it or others who've said it before him, but I, I think the 
there's a famous line that says you, you've got two choices. You can have the lesser pain of discipline or the much greater pain of regret. And if, if you have it on your heart that you're supposed to write a big epic story that combines all of these things that you have loved since you were a little boy that have motivated you in, in the way that you played with your toys when you were five years old and you ignore that then something is going to happen to you inside of you, right? You're, you're, you're uh, you know, like the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? Your heart will shrink if you, if you ignore that calling. But conversely, if you, if you listen to the calling, your, your heart can enlarge and your soul can enlarge and, and your, uh, your engagement with the world can alter. And I think that's the way calling works which is if, if, we, if we do what we're called to do and, and we, we let that be the lens through which we view every day, then we continue to become different people because people rarely stay the same, right? We're either, we're almost all getting smaller or larger or, or better or worse on, on a daily basis, right? And, and, you know, there, there are folks that, you know, maybe you haven't seen in 20 or 30 years uh, who seem like they've maybe lost a, a spark um, or a joy that you once saw them having. Um, and I think conversely, you can see people that, that were maybe not fully themselves yet that you knew a long time ago that you run into and you say, gosh, that's just amazing what this person uh, has become. And I think that all has to do with um, are you making those day-to-day, unobserved, unseen decisions that move you through discipline towards the calling of who you're supposed to be, or are you rejecting that call? And in many ways, we're all living a hero's journey, right? That's, that's why we as human beings love the story of the hero's journey, because it's deep, deep in the subconscious. It's something that's part of the human experience. Michael, I, I'm so glad that that you wrote this book, uh, The Sand Sea. And like I said, I I got a a free digital copy before the book came out, kind of like a pre-read for it. And I loved it so much that as soon as it was available in uh, a physical hardback book, I bought a copy off off Amazon. And so, thank you so much for writing it. You know, and and I'm reading it again, hoping that when I finish it, you'll be finished with the 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 second book. Um, <laughs> read slowly, read slowly. <laughs> and that because it's an alternate history that somehow in the late 1800s, there'll be two podcasters named Jacob and Joe that kind of show, <laughs> show up in the second, second right. book. I don't know, you know, maybe they, they dominate save, Anglian radio. That's yeah. Right. Maybe they save the story. I don't know, but that's just, you know, we're just, Jacob and I are just throwing that out there right well, now. Judging by Joe's timeline uh, on the, the blog and your timeline on your book, I have somewhere in between seven and 12 years to make this successful. So, <laughs> and Michael, um, we're, we're going to wrap this up. We really thank you for being here. I think this is such a, um, a great opportunity for us to be able to sit down and, and uh, really show people out there, you know, that leadership does come from within um, and, and it's, and leadership really can be a lot about yourself and, and how you motivate yourself. And you certainly have shown that over the 12 years to stick with something like this. And it doesn't look like that spark is 
is going anywhere soon for you right now because the the reaction to this book that I'm seeing is really fantastic. So congratulations on your success and, and um, you know, we wish you the best for your your the two books in this in this trilogy. And and again, thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you guys. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us and please join us next week. Make sure you check us out at uh, fromthegreennotebook.com. You can read posts, listen to past episodes of the podcast, subscribe to the monthly reading list and uh, Sunday email. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook and Facebook and Instagram as well. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars on iTunes if you like what we're doing here so you can help us get From the Green Notebook out to more listeners. So I'm Jacob Garonsky signing off and we'll hope to see you next week.